Welcome. Step into our gore-soaked autopsy theater, March Madman listeners. Another maniacally obsessive study of a horror film awaits you tonight. We are here to conclude our extremely meticulous examination of Friday the 13th, Part 2. One of the four finalists in our season that is entirely devoted to the slasher subgenre. Our mission here is to provide you with a definitive answer to the question, what is the greatest slasher movie ever made? Before we proceed tonight, I want to apologize for the sporadic release schedule of our show over the last few months. Uh, we love doing the show, but putting out the bi-weekly episodes is a big commitment, and for the foreseeable future, we're probably going to be returning to the more sporadic approach of our podcast before March Mad Men. And the good news is we're going to be sticking mostly to the in-depth examinations of horror films that are our bloody bread and butter rather than touching on a bunch of films briefly. And I think you all prefer that. So looking forward to wrapping up this season and lots more good discussion to come. But in the unlikely event that this is your first listen to our show, I am John Evans, and my redoubtable co-host has scrubbed in, aproned up, and is ready to keep peeling back the layers of dermis on this movie. I am, of course, talking about the writer of such horror films as Devil's Pass and the worthy Vikram Wheat. Unfortunately, tonight, our third amigo, Rich Eckersley, is not with us because he got the Rona. Rich being rich, he's still working full-time or overtime, but he is definitely under the weather, and he will rejoin us for the Overview pod next time. Vic, I eagerly await your latest adventure or misadventure, as well as the next installment of Vic's Corner. We probably need a uh, better title for the segment than that, but uh, what's going on over there at Rattlesnake Ranch, and what have you been watching lately? Well, John, I want to start by saying that the phrase our, our bloody bread and butter is maybe the most disgusting combination <laughs> of words that I've ever heard. Uh, so well done. Yum. Yum. <laughs> yeah, that's good stuff. Part of what I've been dealing with is the fact that it is raining here and it's been raining off and on for like a week uh, fortunately, we have we've not had many floods. It's mostly good news as we are in the the drought ridden area of Southern California and are on a well, uh, which would occasionally run out of water. And so we would have to truck in water, which is just bizarre to say, but that's a thing people do, apparently. And so I'm hopeful that all of this rain will uh, will prevent us from having to do that, will help our environment and 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 all that kind of stuff. But it's also, uh, one of the biggest storms now uh, that that we've had in a long time. And as I was rewatching this film, I realized that one of the the ominous events in Friday the 13th, part one and part two is the arrival of a giant storm. And then I realized 
that we are just a week away from a Friday the 13th. Uh, and and, it, and it, it started to spook me up a little bit, I got to say. So uh, uh, it could to... literally be raining on Friday the 13th here in L.A. Exactly. <laughs> and me out in the middle of fucking nowhere. So that's, you know, that's just that's just something that happened. What I can I... just see you running along in a in a yellow rain slicker with the rain pouring down. <laughs> <laughs> Chasing a little paper boat. <laughs> or I was thinking, uh, yeah, it for sure. But uh, Steve Christie in the first movie, you know, with his Jeep and all that. And that's how he gets killed. Rain and, and Friday the 13th go together very well. Even the, the little boy stomping in the puddle at the beginning of this of uh, part two. Mm-hmm. It's a pervasive, 100%. a pervasive theme. Uh, as for what I've been watching, I'm trying to think about what I've what I've seen since since the last time we talked. Well, let me uh, let me let me jump in because I've I've seen a few things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the menu I thought was fantastic. I, I did watch two Texas Chainsaw movies, and maybe I will bring this in down the road when we discuss the whole genre. But a couple of words about there's two films I had not seen that have a alternate timeline in the Texas Chainsaw universe, and one of them is literally just texas chainsaw and most of us will understand that 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 movie is most notable for alexandra daddario being the lead in it and then it has a sequel called leatherface which has steven dorf and lily taylor in it uh when i say sequel it's actually more of a prequel but these films were kind of interesting and i will just say that they focused on Leatherface versus the rest of the family. And, well, certainly the first one has this kind of Stockholm Syndrome kind of concept that the the protagonist might end up changing sides. And that's a very interesting thing to, to play with. And, of course, you know, Alexandra Daddario is a compelling screen presence and the movie doesn't suck otherwise. So I thought it was it, w- it was interesting. The, the the prequel to that, a little weaker, doesn't feel like a Texas Chainsaw movie at all. But it was interesting just to pursue an offshoot of uh, retconned Texas Chainsaw mythology. And then these, like, he's called Eli for some reason. It was just like a weird little pocket of the vast universe of Texas Chainsaw that I had not explored and the movies were, you know, reasonably cool and gory and, and and had some fun with the various ideas of, you know, what happens with, with the Sawyer family and their various personalities. And- All right. Um, I did. Something occurred to me. I did <laughs> watch uh, about 45 minutes of the uh, Sadako versus. Oh, gosh, no, I'm like the ring yes, versus the, the it's... ring versus the grudge. It yeah, was. Yeah awful and that's why i couldn't think of it and i literally just stopped after 45 minutes or an hour and was like well that's enough of that yeah that's a few years old right because i i remember watching yeah. it and not not getting much out of it well but that's Indeed. so i'm just saying that should tell you the 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 degree to which i've been i've been scouring the edges of the internet for uh some kind of content all right well we've got some content tonight to discuss and uh without further ado let's get into it uh vic I want to know what you're drinking tonight. I have actually been drinking the strange combination of 
Mountain Dew and Jim Beam. <laughs> but it's not bad. It's not bad. There ought to be a name for that. There should be. Yeah. It probably is. You could call it. You could call it a Leatherface. It should have a, like a Texas Chainsaw inspired <laughs> name. I feel like the Galoot. Can we call Absolutely. it the Galoot? <laughs> I'm drinking a Galoot. <laughs> Galoot. Uh, I am. Uh, I am, um, am. participating in what I would call a, a damp January. Not a not a fully dry January because there are a mm. few little uh, a, a few little things that we that will require some imbibing. Uh, but uh, so I have. Uh, a very reasonably uh, ABV'd New Belgium 1554. Merely 7% or something? 6, 6%. Wow. Uh-huh. Heck. That's, that's like tap water to you, man. Wow. I can't, I can't wait to edit this and see how coherent I sound. This is definitely damp January for you. Yes. Yeah, no doubt. Props out to you on that. Um, I don't have dry months. All <laughs> my months are soggy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we are about to pick up, as we hit play in a few seconds here, where the counselors are going to be splitting up at the camp, and some are going into town to party, and some will be remaining behind, and uh, we're going to get some reasons why the main characters stay behind instead of going out. Each has different reasons, but... Unfortunately, most will have the same results. These characters are going to die because they didn't go into town for drinks. It's not exactly an argument for dry January, is it? (laughs) (laughs) It's a good point, John. Uh, (laughs) I would just point out, too, that we are we are picking up right after the police officer has chased uh, Jason into the woods, found his shack and gotten, I believe, a hammer in the skull. Am I remembering that correctly? Uh, you are. Uh, because I've been editing that last episode, I can tell you I made a, a hammer time joke, and you were relentlessly cruel. Uh, I, <laughs> I that. that sounds about right. Good, good yes. then. <laughs> um, yes, I am watching the poor sheriff uh, grimace with the hammer in his head. So, uh, five, four, three, two, one... We're back to the the counselors, and this is where they start to make their decisions about their evening. I felt like this was uh, structurally kind of something that we haven't really seen before, where we really just split the characters off into two groups. One group is, is so completely safe. It's not like they're going to check out the other part of the camp. There really is this A story of people in town at a bar where they're in no danger and all of the suspense is coming from the people left back. I couldn't think of another example of something like that. Most of these characters haven't been focused on, but the fact that Ted is one of them, I think is what makes it significant because yeah. you could say, oh, all right, we're just getting rid of like, we can't have 40 people here when uh, Jason starts killing everyone. You could read it that way. But what makes it interesting is that Ted, who you expect like, he's the Shelley of this movie, as we've discussed. Mm-hmm. There's a guy, I forget his name, in the first movie, who is the Ted of that movie. And he he gets let off the hook here. There was something sort of unusual about Jenny and, and Ted sort of taking off and being absent from the scary part of the movie. Again, right at the right at the midpoint, which I thought was, was interesting. The other thing that we get out of this scene is sort of a ramping up of things between uh, Mark and Vicky which I really liked. 
Uh, I think there's I'm sure we talked about this some in the last episode. It's been a little while, but uh, I do just mm-hmm. think there's something very sweet about their relationship and their courtship and something sort of natural and genuine. I really enjoy watching them flirt with each other. You just saw Baghead Jason's silhouette very distinctly. Did you did you catch that? Of course. Yes. Yes. Where he's creeping along. Uh, he has decisive steps in this movie. That's what that was. And we get a jog at another point, And there's a creep. I guess this was more creep than decisive steps. But we get all of the slasher killer paces in, in this. That's um, one of the things that's different about it. We have some more Vicky and Mark uh, to come here, even if they're not together. But we certainly see the two characters and uh, individually. I think we definitely talked about like how she's aggressive and he's kind of playing defense, which is kind of refreshing and sort of a a reversal of traditional dynamics at this time in, in cinematic history. I don't know if this had anything to do with it. And I don't know if I mentioned this before, but the actor is gay and maybe that helped in a, a little bit. I don't know how much was up to improv or, or, or choices he definitely is not showing any horn dog kind of impulses or energy with her it's like yeah. completely the opposite of that like she is just like relentlessly after this guy and he's playing it cool to the point of disinterest and i i just you know found it somewhat interesting to learn that the the actor was gay because it it definitely is not in any way like um reading as he's all that hot to trot about this situation. He's just kind of more amiably being like, yeah, you know, she's a a nice girl and I'll try to show her a good time. And we're about to get to a point Mm -hmm. where she's like, "Uh, well, how are you down there essentially or something like that? And he's like, "Uh, you know, I I get by one one way or another. And I think we're going to land on the certainty that there's going to be oral sex involved. (laughs) So let's, let's save this because we can we can get there. But yeah. I I just I do sort of I disagree with your reading of it a little bit. Just okay. in that I agree that he's playing it cool, but it doesn't quite feel like disinterest, and she doesn't seem like overly aggressive. She just seems sort of confidently flirtatious. Like I said, I I really do find mm-hmm. it just sort of a sort of a sweet summer camp courtship. It's frankly much more interesting than Jason Voorhees. Okay, all I'm right, kidding. yeah, I'm, let's, I'm, uh, kidding. Let's... I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But I was going to uh, let that go. But yeah. uh, uh, I mean, you know, you, you definitely <laughs> you like summer camp shit. I will say, too, just uh, again, having having set up that relationship, the script really does work out good reasons for everybody to stay. Right. The There's the two kids who snuck off. They've got to stay and watch the camp. Mark's in training. She's going to stay because she wants to be with Mark. Uh, Terry's once is still looking for her dog watching it this time i've really appreciated the detail that the script goes into to set up all these moments because i think that in a lot of the 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 less accomplished slasher films that we watch for this tournament there would just be like all right which six people do we want to die here okay yeah we're not gonna go yeah we're gonna stay home you know we're gonna play parcheesi or whatever uh and i feel like this this movie again we're talking we're, we're halfway into the movie We've established these characters. We've established their relationships. We've given them some motivation for things that I think it's it's sort of comical in slasher films 
that all this stuff is just slapdash and like, let's just get to the boobs and the kills. Uh, and I really appreciate that they've taken the time to set everything up so that all these plot mechanics actually play out. Good point to tip the cap to Ron Kurtz, the uh, screenwriter here. I don't know that we've mentioned him. He mostly is known for this one and the third film and, and the fourth film. And unfortunately, he died in 2020. Yeah, I think that this is a pretty good script, you know, in a vacuum, let alone as a Friday the 13th film. So glad you highlighted that. Let's go ahead and hit play. I'm seeing a moon and a desolate road, and now we cut to good old Terry wandering along in the darkness looking for Muffy, Muffin, <laughs> and she's going to decide to go skinny dipping, even though she doesn't have her suit, Vic. And there's and there's no one around for her to say, but we don't have our suits. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I still think this counts on the, on the trope list. I still think this counts. Oh, yeah. But then we cut away from that to the VW bug arriving at the roadhouse, this honky-tonk bar, Sandra and Jeff's truck, and every, all the kids are getting out, and they're going to go booze it up. Cut back to Vicky and the moon. The moon is such a weird part of these films. Like uh, They like to creep you out with the moon for some also- reason. Not a cloud in the sky while there's still a storm coming. Uh, That's true. Yeah. No rain on the forecast yet, huh? I kind of feel bad. I mean, Kirsten Baker is is stunning. Like, she's obviously a really gorgeous woman. They also very clearly, like, just wanted her to get, you know, full frontal naked in this movie. So the skinny dipping scene is, like, preposterous. <laughs> like, it is not... Yeah. It is. It is not uh, dramatically motivated. However, like, it is. Why would you go skinny dipping by yourself in the middle of the night, right? Yeah. While, it, while looking for your dog. Yeah. 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 So, we're, but it does set up some other well set up things that I'll get that I'll, I'll circle back to when we get to it. So that's I, I just want to say I'm not just shitting on on the nudity. Uh, uh, there are some things I want to uh, uh, shine a light on later on. This was the beat where, like, we're we're watching the arm wrestling match fall apart between Jeff and Mark. I just felt like this is where the mating call goes out <laughs> for everyone. We have these two couples here. And human beings, we can be so primal, can't we? It's love or at least sex. It's in the air and they're pairing off. Obviously, Vicky is on board with this, and Sandra and Jeff are going to go upstairs. And Vicky, like, yeah, let's, this is a good point to start talking about Vicky. She she knows what it's, she's doing when it comes to the art of flirtation. She's extremely forward, but she, she pulls it off with charm. Well, I love this line when she so uh, Jeff goes upstairs. She asks if she can can have a turn at uh, presumably at arm wrestling. And when he puts his arm up, she says, I only want your fingers, which seems mm-hmm. given the, given the context uh, of him being in a wheelchair and her not being sure about uh, his, his uh, functionality. that seems like a really like more suggestive than it would have been even in any other circumstances. 
not to get ahead of ourselves, but the old uh, perfume in the panties moment, I think, is also directly relevant to that thought. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, hey, I see you're opening something. Can I run down and grab yeah. something? I just opened a, just a basic Lagunitas IPA, but nice. it's, um, it's a classic. One of my notes here, and we may have skipped over it a bit, but I'm sure we'll see it again in a minute, is that we have three separate and distinct stalker POVs in this movie, at least. I think four or five if you're generous with the definition of stalker. And it's not, not all Jason, that's for sure. And we're about to, I believe, get another POV shot that will be a, a non-Jason stalker. Um, and this movie really has just fun with the idea of, and I think the first one did too, but just you don't know whose eyes you're watching through. And then later it becomes like almost always Jason. So this this movie, I guess, is toying with the concept Instead of just like, oh, the heavy breathing and, you know, looking in the window and, and stuff that stalker uh, that slasher movies rely on. And there's no question that you're obviously in the killer's point of view. Right. When it's not Jason, I don't think that we get the the ch- 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 soundtrack. Obviously, we can't verify that, that right now because we have it muted. But I, I'm pretty sure that while you may have some score like some eerie score. I don't think that they would actually do the, the signature if it's not Jason. I I think you're probably right about that. If I have to guess. Yeah. Um, Should we hit play? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. I think we're about to go to a POV after Vicky. Oh yeah. I only want your fingers. Yeah. (laughs) For, For a handheld video game. (laughs) <laughs> um, but I love even that she manages to be sexy even when, when you know, it's a, it's a hockey game and a basketball game or something. And he says, which right. one do you want? And she says, uh, the one with the puck. I'm like, <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't know why that's sexy, but for some reason it's really, it's really hot the way she says it. Yeah, she wants to play for position. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I mean. It's, it, it reminds me of um, Bogart and Bacall in The Big Sleep. Mm-hmm. You know, put your just you just put your lips together and blow. You know, <laughs> not the first time this movie has been compared to that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Stand by it, John. Come to this podcast for references like that. So we're back to this. This is the POV I'm talking about with yeah. Kirsten Baker uh, swimming and being watched in the full frontal and so on. But uh, this is definitely not Jason, as we're about to find out. Mm-hmm. She's and a this- remarkably looking woman yes she is but this so this is part of what i was saying about the 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 script setting even all this up is that uh we've established that scott is kind of a douchebag and kind of obsessed with her so you can see why he stayed but you can also see why he would think it was sort of funny or sexy to steal her clothes and like this is his uh creepish way of flirting she says it's not funny anymore and then he steps on this uh, snare trap. All right, we need to pause it here because this yeah. is like one of those things that you start to, again, think about Jason's capabilities and what make this Jason special. So the question is, did this snare just happen to be there or did Jason set it? 
I'm talking about if um, listeners don't recall, uh, Scott steps on a one of these rope snare things like the Ewoks did in uh, <laughs> Return of the Jedi. Yeah, and it catches his ankle, turns him upside down. You know, he's hanging from the trees. And we can either accept the concept that this thing was there and Jason just takes advantage of it, or this is one of those big check marks on the only this Jason could ever do this uh, list that he could be capable of setting a trap like this. It's a it's rare error for Jason Voorhees to evidence this kind of practical hunting and killing skill. I think that it's consistent with the Jason we see in the rest of the film. I've been arguing the whole time we've been talking about the movie that, you know, this is a Jason who can make phone calls. This is a Jason who will lift the teapot off of the burner. This is a Jason who will do X, Y, and Z that other Jasons are simply not capable of doing. This is a Jason that kind of hide behind trees instead of, you know, just relentlessly juggernaut like stalking through the forest to kill you. This is the human Jason, if, if you will. I like it. Vic, what do you think? Is Do you think he did this? Was this a coincidence? W- what's your take on it? Well, it's also a Jason who had to eat uh, and had to forage for himself in the forest. So it sort of makes yes. sense that he would have worked out how to make traps for animals and stuff, uh, possibly by watching, you know, camp counselors. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> But, but uh, at the same time, he hasn't killed anyone in years, so I don't think he's had access to this kind of thing because what sort of activates him is their presence. That's well, true, but I'm just saying it, it, it does make sense that Jason would be capable of constructing a trap like this. Uh, again, not not just like from his mental sort of capacity, but also that learning to make traps is probably something he would have to do while surviving by himself in the woods. Agreed. It's very feasible. I had always assumed that it was Paul who had done this as part of his, you know, wilderness training or whatever. But it actually does kind of make more sense that it's Jason. You've sold me, John. I I think that would be a tough sell that Paul would just have these kind of, you know, traps around. I could buy it because he's all into back to basics and all that and survival skills. But I just he doesn't seem like that would be helpful really (laughs) to do that i I already mentioned it but like let's underscore this that terry makes scott promise to stop harassing her if she gets him out of this predicament it does kind of harken back to the time when you have to bargain with your stalkers (laughs) 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 it's uh yeah it's unfortunate well i mean so look a that's true but b i think there's something different about this relationship the rest of the movie is essentially characters pairing off right and so here are these two that you sort of think like maybe they're gonna pair off because you know if this was the burning (laughs) she she would be turned on by him stealing her clothes right (laughs) um but uh, and she's not totally negative towards him there's certainly an ambiguity in their relationship it's fair to say you're right. There's a there's a little bit of ambiguity, but there's not any ambiguity at this moment. When he's upside down, she says, I ought to let you hang, you pervert. And right. Absolutely. She she sees this as an opportunity to say, look, you're out of line. And because I have you at a disadvantage, 
I want to take this opportunity to get you to chill the fuck out. Exactly. Uh, And it's, but again, worth noting that this is what it took to flip the balance of power to a place where she could say, leave me alone. You know, he's literally hanging upside down. But yes, I'm just saying, I like that this isn't just another meet cute or another, you know, creepy stalker guy who winds up with the girl in, as is is sort of common in, in a lot of the slasher films that we watched. Absolutely. I mean, all that being said, we see that she has a a degree of warmth and tolerance for him. So it's a mixed bag. Yes. Their dynamic. But she I certainly agree. wants him to, you know, stop like being so aggressive. And that yeah. that's clear. All right. So we're about to get the first machete kill in Friday the thirteenth history. At least it's the first Jason machete kill. He has not killed anyone with a machete yet. So, yeah, she's like, you're going to cut the crap? And he's like, sure, anything I promise. And she's like, all right, I'll go. I'll bail you out. She pops her head back to say, don't go anywhere. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Good old Terry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You and know, she. Uh, muffin. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, uh, I think Muffin might live longer than Terry. <laughs> so, yeah, she's looking around in her cabin for a knife. I, I sort of wondered, like, oh, did Jason take the knife? Like, why is she having such a hard time finding the knife? Miner does some some cool things with the camera here. When she's yeah. jogging up to the cabin, she flips her towel directly at the camera. And we cut as the camera blacks out. And then there was just a shot where she was uh, looking for something. She pops down. She pops back up. She literally just face right in the camera. All I right, like that was, shot a lot. Yeah. Uh, all right. So mm-hmm. yeah. Now uh, uh, Scott just got his throat slit. Not a not an earth shattering. Not an all timer uh, on throat slits. I mean that's the MPAA for you. Yeah. He gets his throat cut, and Terry continues her exhaustive search of the cabin. And she turns up a Swiss Army knife eventually. Runs back out. I love Steve Miner's direction, but we know Scott died. So Terry finding him, it's played as a shock when she finally realizes that he's dead. Like, she doesn't think he's dead for a few seconds. Turns him around. Oh my God, he's dead. And she screams and runs into the camera. And I I don't know if this is the MPAA's heavy hand on the film or what, but we go straight to the Terry's scream fades into the bar band's guitar. I do like this juxtaposition. It's good old-fashioned entertainment, knowing how to play with the grammar of the medium, like we talked about with Muffin disappearing and the hot dogs on the grill. It's not mm-hmm. earth-shattering, but it's just good studio competence. Exactly, it's, exactly. Mm-hmm. I will say, too, this bar looks like fun. I would totally like to hang out here. <laughs> oh yeah me too i did like a tiniest amount of research and this band is still around like the yeah. band in this bar yeah yeah they still play which is pretty freaking cool we shall find this band john <laughs> they could have they could have played at either of our weddings absolutely who needs violins <laughs> So I, I can't believe we didn't get to this last time, but yeah, we're about to have Ginny opining on the story of Jason Voorhees, which is so much to chew on. It's a meal, which he gives us here. It is. I made the note that because she says, 
what would it mean in real terms? Yeah. And I thought this is the only time in any Friday the 13th movie where someone tries to explain Jason in real terms. Yes. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. That realism is fantastic. Well, let's pause it for a second there. Yeah. This is this is definitely one of the key moments in this film as it sets up the climax, if nothing else. She says basically that Jason longs for his mother's resurrection. And as we'll find out in a way, Ginny gives that to him. Jason is open to what she offers. And so it seems that her read is right on the money pretty much across the board, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And that's why, even though this is a little bit more clunky, but setting her up as a child psychology major, you know, who's coming to a to a camp for kids. It works in terms of the scripting and the character and all this. It's not Aaron Sorkin, but it right. really does. It, But it does create – she is the Dr. Loomis. She is giving us the only insight we're going to get into who Jason is and why he does what he does until Creighton Duke uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. in part nine. <laughs> It is very interesting. It's not it's not the deepest sort of psychological uh, depth. Uh, it does not, for, for my money, compare to what Donald Pleasance gives us about Michael Myers. But it does, as you said, create some realism in the film. They want this to play in a more grounded way than I think any of the other Friday the 13th movies uh, really tries to. And it's... One of the most defining characteristics of this movie, I think, that we set up this idea that the protagonist needs to understand the antagonist. And if she does, she can manipulate him. And you create, and, a, and you create a protagonist that's capable of understanding him. Yes, yes, which, which is pretty special in a subgenre marked by people just reacting to some weirdo showing up in their house and running around and stabbing them with knives or knitting needles or, or whatever that, that the idea that she knows who is coming after her and she actually understands what drives him. That's so much more interesting. Yeah. And well, and I the, really the, like that. That his drive is, is relevant to the story that we're telling. You know, yes. I think by the time you get to, to part, certainly by part six, that drive is irrelevant and he's just a zombie. But yeah. Well, first... I would say that we abandon Pamela entirely after this movie. And, and that may may not be to the credit of the series because he he becomes so psychologically unilateral or simple that after this movie, none of that matters anymore the backstory. Yeah. Well, except for uh, the, the, in the instance of Corey Feldman's character in part four, that's an attempt, I think to recreate some of this uh, magic uh, as far as, as having a protagonist and creating some kind of psychological connection with, with Jason as still a person of some sort. It doesn't, it doesn't work quite as well. And there's a reason we're doing this movie and not that one. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting point to bring up. 
like just on the face of it, not getting deep into it at all, it makes a lot more sense that you would be motivated by seeing your mother than yourself. (laughs) Yes. But again, as I said, it doesn't work as well, but it was, it was at least a swing in that direction. But I think that's the, the last one and the only one between this one and that. There's a lot I like about that movie. And I, I think that that might be a good argument for the quintessential Jason the Corey Feldman character does a more than passable Amy Steele impression as far as like getting into the head of, of Jason, but it doesn't make as much sense as this one does, you know, like psychologically. Yeah. This is what's strange to me, I guess, is that this is in many ways a successful attempt to sort of ground Jason as a character in the real world. And yet this movie never makes sense (laughs) of whether when he lived in the lake or like what happened when he died. I don't know. It's, it's just funny how they, they get so much right, but there's this one thing that they're just like, eh, next time somebody else, somebody else fix this. Yeah. That paradox in the middle of it. I can't get past it either yeah. because Pamela kills because Jason is dead. He's not, she gets killed and then Jason kills because Pamela is dead. It, it, it doesn't make sense. It, I, I just keep coming back to the idea of this, sad missed connections montage and the butterfly wings all the times that jason and pamela almost crossed paths over the years between 1957 or 58 and 1980 1981 but they just kind of never did but yet he's so close that he watches her die that's the implication of this movie it doesn't make a ton of sense no but the rest of it (laughs) the rest of it they actually ground yeah, anyways, I think that there'll be more more on, on that in the overview episode. I'll save that for that. Sounds good. Sounds yeah. good. So let's hit play. I think, if I'm not mistaken, we're about to go and do another uh, Peeper POV. And this time, I believe it will be Jason. After we get out of the bar, we're still watching the great Ginny talk about Jason not even knowing the meaning of death until that horrible night. By the way, I don't think she has a last name in this movie, which is odd because like most of the characters have a last name. I don't know what that means, but I think Ginny does not have a last name. My like uh, Paul Holt. <laughs> my my Amazon uh, uh, thing says Ginny Field. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure it ever comes up, but okay, yeah, I don't think that's ever said in the in the movie. No, but... I don't think so either. It's also, you know, I mean, it's a good thing that Ted does not go back to the camp because his dismissiveness of her is just certain death. Oh, yeah. Uh, and even Paul is kind of he, a he, about it. Oh, absolutely he is. Absolutely. But Ted is destined to die in a Friday the 13th movie. And he just kind of doesn't because he goes for the after party. <laughs> <laughs> Ted moved to Haddonfield and changed his name to uh, Ben Tramer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the POV shot I'm talking about. We're watching Vicky and Mark through the window. This has got to be Jason, yeah. And he's then he watches the other couple, Jeff and his underage girlfriend. <laughs> There's the mask on the As they walk up, you see the mask still on the spear from when Ted yep. jumped out at them. And I do wonder, like, this spear is actually, like, capable of killing people. Really? It looked like it would be a flimsy plastic spear from, you know, originally. 
So, yeah, Vicky asks Mark what happened to uh, him, and he says, motorcycle accident paralyzed his legs. And she says, is it permanent? And he's like, the doctor thinks so, but I don't. The line, I don't intend to be in this thing the rest of my life, is like weirdly, darkly ironic because he literally dies in the chair. So <laughs> it's like, it's kind of yeah, fucked ten up. Minutes later. <laughs> yeah, 10 minutes later. When he says, I'm in training, it's like, and she's like, for what? And he just kind of frowns, and, and we never get the answer. Yeah. <laughs> I assume, like, to be a counselor, but it doesn't make a ton of sense. No, we're, we're back to Sandra and uh, Jeff. Like, I know it's the MPAA, but there's something so awkward and not sexy about the sex in these movies. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I don't know. I'm watching them kiss, and it's not totally off. No, the kissing, the kissing, the, like again, they can do all that. No, I mean the actual, the actual sex. You know, okay. I think about Linda, Linda and Bob and Halloween and Slumber Party Massacre. I think there was some some actual coitus taking place, and it's just like I get that it's sort of titillating because you just never get to see that in movies, and at least in the '80s and whatever, but. I don't know. Watching it now, it just looks, it just looks awkward and uncomfortable, and it it does it does not strike me as terribly sexy. I guess. Well, I mean, if you know anything about production, as I know you do, you know nobody wants to make us do a sex scene. You know, it's pretty awkward and kind of uncomfortable. Shoot, yeah, you know you're like you're doing a sex scene for hours, <laughs> just yeah. lying on somebody. <laughs> Under under hot lights with a dozen right. people around. Yeah, but, it's totally un- unnatural. Yeah. You can lose yourself in a kiss or something for one minute, but mm-hmm. Vicky changes her underwear so it will match her bra. I guess I don't know. Uh, she's she's got these off the rack 1980s Target panties, and she thinks they're sexier than her black ones. It doesn't make a ton of sense to me. I I John I disagree a hundred percent, and I will go to the mat on this. <laughs> I love those off the rack. Uh, uh, give me a, a girl in just Hanes white cotton panties, dude. That's hot. That's not what she's putting on, dude. There are those like shiny, weird, like it's 80s still, it's brown panties. Still hot. It's still hot. <laughs> no, nope, I'm on board. Vicky, you, I, li- I like your taste. <laughs> All if, right. I was, if I was Mark, I would have not. I would not get killed by Jason before whatever's getting ready to happen. Well, I, I think that's more Vicky taking a million years to come back. I mean, it's not really him. Look, I if think. that's how long it takes her to get ready, then that is fine. <laughs> so we're about to get the another POV, Jason POV, right before she pulls up the, the new panties. And it's sort of a... a Another full frontal from a distance. And I, it just makes me think, this is this movie has the most nudity of any slasher movie I can think of. We're not talking about boobs here, but definitely in uh, Bush. Is it okay to say Bush anymore? I think so. Yeah. What's wrong let us, with that? Let us know. <laughs> let, let us know, Bush Madman. John F. Underscore Evans. Is it okay to say Bush? All right. <laughs> 
but yeah, she's about to spray the perfume on her crotch. And I, I think that that moment comes and we're about to, you know, watch it. And you can let me know if you agree. She suddenly like remembers, oh, right. Yeah. With this guy, his face is definitely going to be down there. <laughs> That's how this is happening. She knows it's happening. <laughs> I, all right. Now, this this is going to sound this might be insensitive. We might have to cut this. I don't know. Do you think why, that's why she's so into him? Because she like wants she, like she, Yeah, she really wants a guy to go down on her, and she knows that he'll have to. Uh, that, I mean, that's not totally illogical. I mean, back you're, then, it was probably harder to find a guy to go down on you, you know? Yeah. You're um, 19, it's 1981. The one thing I will say is that she almost does it as an afterthought here like when she sprays the perfume down there well yeah so i don't i don't think it's top of mind well here's what i'm saying his comfort might not be top of mind <laughs> like oh her, god her it. Concern yeah. for him might not be the first thing she's thinking of. i don't know i, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know no 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 that may, that checks out she's like you know what i'll make it a little easier for him yeah, right right exactly. that checks out yeah yeah we talked about this when we when we did the movie initially. This is the the sweetest, sexiest, coolest moment in this whole movie. I I just love it. It's such a cool little character beat, an acknowledgement of their relationship. Like I would totally date Vicky, uh, largely because of just that alone. And there's so many aspects of this movie that are special and stand out. And that's just another one, like not, not even in the top 25, but there it is. It really is great. Nope. All it's right. number one, John. It's number one. <laughs> just, just Fair enough. All right. But what was wrong with her black panties? I don't know. I mean, I don't like black panties, but they look fine. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> A lot, of, a lot of discussion on John and I's preferences in women's underwear tonight. I just, the, those, those like brown nylon panties are so 80s. They disappeared probably for a reason. That's all I'm saying. So she starts spraying herself with the, yep, yeah, and she gives a little smirk, shoots it south of the border. It really is kind of sad. Like she goes on like another half an hour before she just goes back to him. Yeah. They don't even, like, this wonderful couple, a lot of couples get to at least get it on before they get killed. These two have to get killed separately. It's sad. And then she's going she's to run out to the car in her underwear uh, as right. we're starting to get the, we're getting the lightning flashing, the storm is on its way. Well, one of the things about the girls in this movie is that they're not shy at all. They make it very easy <laughs> for observers on the other side of the window or the screen to watch them. <laughs> True. They're not shy. She's digging around in the car for something. Yeah, glove box. And we have this POV right on her butt for some reason. Because I don't yeah, think Jason's right. Yeah, for right some her. reason, John. <laughs> <laughs> what was Steve Miner thinking? I think it's a yeah. I think it's a brush. She gets a hairbrush out of this car. That's it. Well, John, you don't know which hair she's brushing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna leave that right there. If we <laughs> if we can't, we don't have Rich to pull us out. back tonight. We don't yeah. have we don't have Rich to pull us back tonight. <laughs> <laughs> John, this is the this is the episode where John and I get in trouble. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
John and Vic get canceled. <laughs> so Mark is starting to wonder where Vicky is. Uh, the storm is intensifying big time. Uh, maybe he hears Jason outside. He's talking to Vicky, even though she's not there. Obviously, that's a slasher movie trope. And then we have this camera like trucking in behind him. Oh, Jason must be right behind his head. He's creeped out. But we're about to see, yeah, that he's not behind him. And then and suddenly the machete winds up in Mark's face. And one of the most indelible sequences in Friday the 13th history. He rolls down the stairs. I just have to wonder, okay, let's take our let's make our way through this sequence. It's odd cinematography with the reverse shots and then there's no one there until there is. And then the third time he's staring straight ahead and the machete must come in from behind him or he has no peripheral vision on top of his motorcycle accident uh, paralysis. But Mark rolling backwards downstairs with a machete buried in his face is one of the great series of shots in the franchise. And then we go to the quick fade to white instead of a fade to black, which is also a different and distinctive way to end a sequence. Vic, what what are your thoughts on this somewhat iconic kill in the franchise? So I backed it up. When, so I watched this again. I watched this the first time when we, when we did it, I watched it again recently uh, to, to prep for this podcast and when we got to that scene, I backed it up and watched it again. So this is now the fourth time I've seen that sequence of him being killed. I can't figure out where the machete comes from. Right. <laughs> yeah. Is I know. is Jason on a ladder? Is he is he like is he on the roof? I don't understand. But you're right that mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter. Uh, it's also the, the you get the the as you said the truck or the dolly in behind him is sort of strange because most of Jason's POV shots are handheld and you get that little bit of that That's little right. bit of bounce to it. This feels very slow and very steady, which I actually think is a little bit more suspenseful in this instance. But the shot mm-hmm. of him of him rolling down the stairs is is brilliant. It's really well done and then you get not just the flash to white, but in another one of those great transitions, the white and the the score transitions to Sandra and Jeff climaxing. That's right. Yes. They are having their O faces. Yes. (laughs) There's no doubt. I think it's fair to say the the cinematography in this film does not always seem artfully calculated. The editing and the cinematography, the way that that sequence is put together, I can't say that like, oh man, that's the best way you could have constructed that sequence there's something awkward about it but at the same time it doesn't diminish the impact no pun intended when the machete finally buries itself in his head this movie is weird and unconventional in its editing and cinematography but usually the impact is not so much oh, you blew it, that doesn't work, so much as I'm strangely off balance, and I can't justify why, as a viewer, I'm off balance, but I am, and it's not bad that that's what, you know, that that's what the scene is doing to me. Well, and it, it, you're coming you're coming off of 
that weird POV shot of Vicky's ass as she's bending over into the car. But the the movie has set you up in a place where you don't always know when you're getting that tracking shot. Is someone getting really getting ready to be killed? Is this a you know is is it going to be somebody else? Is it going to be nothing? Is this just a, a you know an omniscient camera point of view? Yeah. So the shock value and the surprise is is still there. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't I don't think it will be there for much of the rest of the film, but. <laughs> up to that point because now i think there's no more there's no more sort of sort of fake outs like after this it's always going to be jason yes yes but i i think they don't need to keep playing that card Agreed. i would argue from here on so yes we have some lusty afterglow here from jeff and sandra then Jason makes the decision. I'm taking this party to the next level. I'm just going to go into the main lodge. I'm done picking people off in and around the grounds. I'm going in. He sees the goofy caveman mask. No interest in that. Throws it off the spear. Starts going up the stairs. Methodically walks up the stairs. This is like classic Jason, future Jason, just following his shoes up the stairs so we get a little bit of all adjacent for all seasons we get the future jason other than maggots in his face but we also get you know jason who's capable of other stuff that's part of why i like this movie so much is the full spectrum jason and we see him open the door come in with the spear poor jeff will never know oh sandra sees him the spear goes through their bodies, and yeah, the MPAA took out about a minute of footage, over a minute in this whole movie. Much of it was that scene. That was the most gory scene they ever shot. That was supposed to be the the money shot of the whole movie. They used fake bodies. Like, we were supposed to absolutely see that spear go through these two bodies, and... The MPAA's radar was so up from the first one that they were going to not let this movie get away with anything. And, you know, consequently, this is an extraordinarily tame movie from a gore perspective. And yet it doesn't bother me. You know, it really doesn't bother me that much. From a storytelling perspective, I really I really like the expedience of that. I feel like future iterations of Jason they would have she would have gone to take a shower and, and, you know, and then he would come in and we cut back and forth. And is he going after her? Is he going after him? And then he'd finally kill someone. And then the other person would come in and scream. And I, I appreciate that. It's like, look, we got to we got to get rid of these two people. <laughs> like, yeah, let's get let's get on with the let's kill these two and get on with the story. So it's really nice. I mean, it, you know, he just kebabs the two of them at once. You get the gist of it. I mean, yeah. am I really watching that? saying oh man this would have been so great if we'd seen more of it not really i don't watch that scene saying it's so neutered it doesn't work if only yada yada i think it's fine this is a movie that doesn't give you a lot of great gore effects thank you and fuck you mpaa the movie still works so i think that's actually one of the better compliments for the film that I could give it. And it's going to, it's going to pay off a little bit, at least when Jenny shows up later 
which we'll again we'll get to. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but we get the aftermath of it, which really does paint a much more violent picture. It reminds me of the girl in part six, I believe, where we don't see the murder. We just see from outside her get sort of thrown through the window and then pulled back in. And then the characters come in later, and I, I believe we all joke that it looked like uh, she'd been mauled by a bear in the cabin. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're about to cut back to the honky-tonk bar and see that a lot of Heineken have been consumed. And I've had nights like that, for sure. I mean, you can drink a lot of Heinies before you fall over. It is yep. not a strong beer. And Ted is, is saying, challenge accepted. Yep. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. It's not on the Vikram wheat list of approved beers. Heineken's like water, but I think it tastes pretty crisp and clean. Paul's about to say that Ted would have him out until breakfast if he let him. And he tells Ted to come home when the bar closes. Obviously, Ted's pretty liquored up. And fortunately for Ted, he's not tired or he would be dead but we're about to get his martini shot because uh, it'll be the last time we see him. Paul is like, come right back to the camp. And Ted's like, oh, yeah, you got it, boss. Like acting like a little little weirdo. And he <laughs> does not. <laughs> he does not. No. Pouring rain, pouring rain. Yeah. Yes. The storm has arrived, which is, uh, as in the first one, an omen of bad things to come. Indeed. And Paul and Jenny get back in their VW bug. I hope they don't road trip to New Texas after this movie because I saw a lot of VW bugs in the Sawyer compound. The movie goes to the trouble of including this farewell for Ted. He asks this old couple, are there any after hours places around? And we know that the takeaway is he's not coming back when the place closes. He's going to disobey Paul, keep the party going. Is that what saves his life? Obviously. I wonder, like, do we include this little scene to explain why he doesn't show up again? Probably. It, it script, does tie up the loose end. The script goes out of its way to save Ted. You're like, what happened to Ted? And it's like, oh, no, look at that scene. You know, like that that should answer your question. So we've, we've come back to Vicky looking Vicky. for Mark. I know I brought this up when we did the our original uh, It's Always Friday the 13th episode on this. She goes upstairs to look for Mark, and I don't understand. Mm, yeah. It's the one, well, it's no, the one uh, place but, we know he isn't. Yeah, you're not wrong, but by the time she actually goes up there, she's saying Sandra and, you know, she's saying the names of the characters that would be up here. It's true. Yeah. This is one of my favorite shots of the whole movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Jason sits up in the bed. Let's back up a, a bit so that the audience knows what we're talking about. Vicky goes up looking for Sandra and Jeff, and she enters their bedroom slash death room finds that Jason has staged his first tableau. You see Sandra's still in the bed. Her sheet is now pulled over her almost completely. And where Jeff was, Jason is now. And he sits up fast and aggressively. The pillowcase mask is scary as all get out. Vicky screams. This is one of my favorite moments of the movie. This is in my top 10, uh, for sure. And instead of backing out the door which is right behind her she backs into jeff who is tableau positioned with a uh, sheet noose around his neck to hold him up against the wall i i would surmise 
And I know that Vicky is on the wrong side of the open door in the way that it hinges, but she all she has to do is move forward to get around it. Instead, she just kind of cowers a foot from escape until Jason, you know, as Jason slowly approaches her with his knife, which he's holding upside down. And he has a, <laughs> a, a nasty, very, very visible subdural hematoma on his thumbnail. And then he eventually stabs downward into her midsection and blood oozes from her lips, which I guess implies instant internal bleeding. Uh, Vic, we haven't actually watched this scene yet. Uh, we will, we're about to, but mm. do you have any thoughts before I hit play? I want to push back on the notion of the tableau. I actually have a note that in this film, Jason's moving of bodies and hiding of bodies actually feels more practical. Like he moved, he didn't, he's not positioning Jeff for someone to find. He's getting Jeff out of the way because he's going to surprise whoever comes in looking for them. Uh, There's a few other instances later on that I'll point out. But that Jason, it's there's nothing to me. There's nothing like Crispin Glover being corkscrewed to the wall, uh, like Christ on the cross. I'm not sure this actually constitutes a tableau because we're dealing with that more human Jason. I really thought of this as he's putting bodies in places where they will be out of sight until he can make his next move. Interesting. It's certainly though very premeditated to be hiding under this bed, you know, uh, under the sheet in this bed to spring out. But he he covers when we never see Sandra. I agree. It's not a traditional tableau, but he could have put Jeff anywhere. The choice to hang him by his neck over here seems somewhat showy. I would I would say. I think he I think he hung him behind the door where he wouldn't be seen. By anyone who was walking it, I'm telling you, I'm calling it. This is not this is not a Michael Myers tableau. This is this is just practical serial murder 101. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I I'm seeing it. He's 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 definitely like luring her in. But at the same time, if it weren't for her inability to make her way around this little door, she could have absolutely escaped. So, well, that's true. Once once he's up and coming toward her with the knife, as you were saying, it's a yeah. really cinematic, almost Hitchcockian shot yeah. with the, the knife and the and the hand right in front of the camera and everything else sort of out of out of focus. Minor brings a, a, a weirdly cinematic competence to this that you do not many times that you go, wow, that's a that's a really cool shot. You say that I've said that a couple times in this film. And this is yes. one of I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, it's a wonderfully classical cinematic shot. In aggregate, what makes this movie so special is that it just has so many things like that that are above par, that are weirdly great in a, a franchise directed mainly by jobbers and, and kind of put together as a exploitation film by a disinterested studio. And yeah, I, I just think that you're, you're, you're right to nail that. Like that, 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 that's another thing that feels strangely special about this film. Okay. That's it's true. Wait, one mm-hmm. well, sorry. One last thing on that, yeah. Yeah. but those shots do stand out. A lot of times you're sort of conscious of 
Terry throwing the towel and the, you know, and the camera blacking out as the, as the towel, it's the camera and some of that stuff. There's something sort of self-conscious about it. Still cool. And it still adds a, a layer of sort of little exceptional elements. It's very different from something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where the cinematography is beautiful and spectacular and has all these really cool shots, but never feels self-conscious in the way that these do. I think that's why the, the, the Hitchcock thing sort of felt apt mm -hmm. because I think Hitchcock or, you know, and the other thing I would compare it to is uh, Zemeckis in what lies beneath, except in a good way here. Let's not uh, relitigate uh, what lies beneath, uh, but uh, we have, we have a couple episodes talking about that. We that do film. check it, check it out. Dig, dig back yeah. into uh, the haunted house season. If you, if you don't remember that, cause boy, <laughs> howdy, I got off on a rant. I would call it somewhat of a quibble how Vicky just goes down this way. You know, like I would have liked her to try a little harder to get out of this situation. I don't love it. And you're not kidding about that. Uh, the, the subdermal hematoma. Great, uh, right? great word, by the way. But yeah, that's really <laughs> that's really distinct. Yeah. Ginny and Paul return in the rain. Just as they're hurrying back into the lodge, we're going to see Vicky's legs being dragged back down the stairs. We never see where Jason puts Vicky, though. She doesn't appear in the final tableau back at his shack. The movie makes a point of telling us he removes Vicky's body. But That's because it's not a tableau, John. He's getting her body out of the way so as not to alert Jenny and Paul that anything is wrong yeah. when they walk in the door. Practical. All right, well, I mean... Vic, if your if your view is Jason's not a tableau guy at this point in his career, I think that's that's valid and interesting, and I think it's certainly there's an argument to be made. Holy shit, John! We've agreed on two different things in this podcast. That's amazing. <laughs> we we disagree on which Steve Miner slasher movie is the best. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Lake Placid, right? Oh, I, I like Paul says, these kids smoke better dope than I do. <laughs> I like that line a lot. <laughs> so uh, they see a lot of blood in the bed, and Ginny's like, this is not a joke. And uh, I like that. The Ghost. bed is horrifically bloody. Like, it's, yeah. it's well composed to make you go, what the fuck? You kind of know somebody probably died there, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, the power goes out, and then, you know, Paul's like, the kitchen light is still on. And they're assuming that the power went out, but Jason just turned off the lights manually is my interpretation of this. <laughs> yes, because he's inside the house, so he can't have cut the power. <laughs> well, he cuts the power in the next couple of movies, but in this one, yes. I think he just flips the switch. <laughs> I wonder if, wouldn't it be cool if we found out that Jason had, there was just some weird, like, electromagnetic field around him that just shorted out electricity? Uh, went? That would be interesting. Jenny says... Paul, there's someone in this room. And I think it's a great line because and she says it in this kind of calm, matter-of-fact way. How does that not, not freak you out, though? We don't see what she sees. And the camera like lingers somewhat in this pan to a Coke machine in the negative space behind Paul. But I never see Jason in the frame. And then suddenly, after that, he very clearly rises up, Jason does, rises up from a crouch in the vicinity with a spear again behind Paul. And it's a very disturbing image. Like you get the vibe of a hunter lining up the shot on his prey. 
And then she says, and I love, I love Amy Steele's read on this line. She's like, Paul, there's someone in this fucking room. It's a great read on that line. I my take on the 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 first time she says there's someone in this room is yeah. more that it's like a sense that she has. You know, you walk yeah. into a room and there's you get that feeling of breathing or something settling like, you know, somebody's watching you. And so it felt a little more indistinct. They still don't know where everybody is. Like it could be they get, you know, it could be Jeff trying to scare them or something. So it makes a little bit of sense to me that she's not sort of panicking at that point. Just that feeling we walked in, you know, I think there's someone in here. And yes, then you get the the pan and the silhouette standing up and her read, which saves Paul's life, frankly. Yeah, yeah the tension in the build of the scene like you have to be as an audience member you just have to be kind of reacting viscerally it's so simple really you know these lines the situation and yet i don't think i've seen this in a, in a ton of horror movies but the, the basic tension and suspense of this where there's these two characters in a room and she has the the vibe that they're not alone in this dark room. And she says something, and then she really sees more. It escalates her warning. There's nothing like genius about this conceptually or weird, but why haven't we seen this this kind of thing more often? Because it just grips you. It's so tense and you don't have to buy into any weird mythology or supernatural stuff. This would be scary regardless of what's going on. It's one of my favorite scenes in the movie for some reason, you know, because it just like plays out on on this primal fear of what is in this room and I'm not totally sure. And oh my God, there's someone coming at us right now and what do you say and how quickly can you say it and how clearly can you say it It just works john your description of the scene really made me think of wait until dark the old uh, uh terrence young film with audrey hepburn and alan arkin i almost said alan alda uh, and i still had to look it up <laughs> Uh, with Alan Arkin, but it very much plays on that same sense of suspense, right? I'm in the room. There's someone else in here. I don't know where they are, but I know they're in here just based on those other senses that you have uh, and and the suspense that you're able to milk out of that. Uh, I mean, that's, that's high praise even for a 30-second scene in uh, Friday the 13th Part 2. And no one's blind either in this movie. Well, no, but the lights are off, which is yeah. which is part of what helps create that sense. And in fact, is if I recall, the way Audrey Hepburn gets the upper hand on uh, Arkin is to smash all the lights so that he can't turn the lights on. Jason and Paul are going to scuffle because Jason makes a move with the spear yep. and he's clearly got the drop on him. Compared to the action choreography, the fight scenes in the first movie, this is great, but uh, not not the best ever. I'm not sure how Jason misses Paul with the spear. When she shouts at him, he kind of turns and knocks the the spear away with his elbow when he turns. Uh, yeah, her reaction, her reaction does do that. John, I'm I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna derail the podcast for 90 seconds. 
and I apologize to you. I apologize to listeners. What you just said reminded me because I knew I had been watching something and I was like, what the fuck was I watching? Oh, good. That I wanted to talk about. It was season two of Alice in Borderlands on Netflix, uh, which is a very good sort of squid game style show. Uh, has some very cool stuff, some good ideas. I just, you know, the that, that style of, of storytelling I really enjoy. The second to last episode, I think it's eight. I think it's eight episodes so it will be uh, episode seven has one of the best fight scenes i've ever seen it's up there with the raid and and the matrix and i mean it's more grounded than the matrix but it's up there with the raid in terms of fight choreography and like uh how long it goes on it's really awesome uh even even if you just look up uh king of spades battle uh, that'll, I'm sure that's gotta be on YouTube by now, but, uh, otherwise in general, the show is worth checking out. So it's better than Betsy Palmer versus Adrian King, huh? One of the greatest fight scenes ever blocked. <laughs> it does, it does not end with a slow-mo decapitation, which is the only way that I think it could be improved. You know, the scuffling is fine here, but to me, it's a bit convenient how Jason misses Paul with the spear, but Let's hit play, see what you think. Pause it when Ginny starts just saying Paul, Paul over and over again in this like soft voice. She's like stunned and strangely passive. Got it. Yeah, you better believe I have a note on this. Uh, (laughs) Good. Yeah, I'd like to know what you think. But like she almost goes into shock or something here. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what's going on. There's nothing frantic about it at all. That's for sure. But she just kind of goes into this temporary state, kind of, I guess, hoping that it all works out is how I interpret it. What it's do you think? So, it's so frustrating. Ugh. Yeah, I just it's well, because this is and I know we I'm sure we talked about this in the earlier matchups of this movie. But like this is the quintessential cliche of the boyfriend getting his ass kicked. And the girl just standing there going, Paul, Paul. Right. And then when everything's silent and nobody said anything, she's still like, maybe Paul won. You know, like right. either either do something and help or run. But like to stay, this is the most ineffectual that Jenny is in this whole movie. And I don't like I actually don't buy this. Like it pulls me out of the movie that she would just stand there and stare like this because it doesn't fit with her character. I totally agree. Amy Steele does a fine job of performing it, but the beat is it's not satisfying. It's not believable. It's it's just off. It's not a terrible scene or anything, but it, it certainly it's discordant in some way. And it's shot like you she can't see the outcome of the scuffle for some reason. And then it's just Jason who pops up into the frame as the apparent victor. And then her adrenaline kicks in and she flees into the the bathroom. But uh, yeah, this this weird moment of passive stasis is is a bit frustrating and and, and strange. From one of the, the stronger and more resourceful final girls that you'll ever see in a slasher film. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I will stand by my statement that that Ginny is my favorite final girl and she redeems herself. But uh, uh, this scene is uh, certainly a bit baffling. I could only possibly suggest that this is the beginning of 
of her fight and she hasn't quite really realized what she's up against. And once she does, she will be dialed in from there. But at this point, she's maybe still laboring under misconceptions about, you know, how innocuous the scenario might really be and is indulging in that, that sense that everything's going to be okay. And Paul has this under control and it's just some, you know, goofy counselor or weirdo. And, you know, Paul will pop up and say, ah, you know, just some, some stupid teenager. I got him. Cause she doesn't know it's Jason yet for sure. Like that's, that's the only way I can read it. See, I, this just dawned on me. I would love to see this scene reconstituted wherein we've, we've layered in something about Paul cheating on her. And so when she has this opportunity, she's like, Nah, gonna stand here and watch Jason kill it. <laughs> yeah, because that makes more sense. Like that's how you make it work that she's not that she's not doing anything. Is only if she actually just wanted Paul to die for some reason. <laughs> Paul, answer me. And then Jason rises up, and she instantly freaks out, runs into the bathroom. Door doesn't lock. She's just holding it with her own strength. From this point on, we've got almost 20 minutes left in the movie. This is just one long chase scene. More or less, yes. It is. Yeah, I mean, yes. it's, a, it's a series of individual set pieces where she is hiding someplace and comes up with this way of defending herself and then runs away and gets to another place. So it's, it's a couple of set pieces, but it's essentially one long chase. There's almost no dialogue. So while she's in that bathroom, Jason just suddenly puts his hand through the window uh he's worked his way around instead of trying to get the door open he cuts up his hand she closes another door now she's in the kitchen she shoots the bolt and this time she sees jason trying the doorknob so the window looks like a safe bet this time but then he stops quickly he abandons his efforts at the door but she's picked up a knife this being a kitchen of course chef's knife probably she goes back to the door maybe he's gone and then suddenly he tries again and he puts a, puts a pitchfork right through the door, which is, oh yeah, after just kind of trying the knob. This is this is very uh, like The Shining. As she bolts, she tries a door, crazy old Ralph falls out of the closet, which again goes back to my, he is hiding bodies strategically to keep them out of view not creating a tableau. Like, I think he killed Crazy Ralph, was like, fuck, if they see this, they're going to know there's a killer on the loose. I'd better stash him somewhere. I don't think it was like, oh, I can't wait for somebody to open that pantry door, uh, and then Crazy Ralph will fall out. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm reading you. That, that, that take makes sense. I, I do want to say that it, it's funny that the first time we saw Crazy Ralph, he was hiding in a summer camp pantry, and his final appearance is his body hidden in a summer camp pantry. Oh, so interesting. And a, yeah, from a pantry he comes, and to a pantry he goes. <laughs> <laughs> I also sort of appreciate it from this this more realistic grounded perspective the way that the way that the bodies are found and not all of the bodies are found because i think even in halloween i think bob sort of flops down from somewhere like 
bodies get appear conveniently in order for somebody to go, oh my God, you know, there's bodies everywhere. And so I like that the that the bodies are placed like a killer who wanted to stash them long enough for him to kill everybody else. Like the, that practicality of it makes the whole thing feel more realistic than it often does when we get to this part of a horror film. A slasher film, sorry, not just a horror film, yeah. a slasher film, yes. Even if you don't entirely embrace or agree with your your take that he's anti-tableau or ignoring the, the concept of the tableau, certainly this movie handles it in a grounded and believable way, what he does with bodies, you know? Yes. Like, exactly what he's thinking, we don't know. But it's not like he's staging these absurd scenarios with the, you know, possible. I, I think it's a little strange that Jeff is where Jeff is. But I think you did a good job of selling it that, you know, she he needs to clear room because he wants to be in the bed. He could have put Jeff under the bed, but it's not showy that he puts Jeff where Jeff ends up being. Jenny is with alacrity about to jump out a window. Now that window was always there. She could have just gotten out earlier, but now she's she's sprinting back to the old VW bug. We're on to our next set piece, a classic yep. in the uh, in the slasher film where you're in the car, you're trying to get it started. Well, and it starts right up, and she drives the fuck away, and we roll credits. And I yep. really like this movie. I like that she got away that way. <laughs> no, the car does not start, and Jason's baghead just rises up in the driver's side window. But all that said, at least we've set up that the car doesn't work. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. it's not like other movies where the car suddenly stops working as soon as you need it to go. Out of nowhere, yeah. yeah. No, they, they they laboriously set up that this car is unreliable. He drives this, uh, the pitchfork through the roof of the car. A little quibble, he knows where she is. Like, why does he drive it through the middle of the roof instead of the, the driver's side? I think he could have gotten her there if he wanted to. Do we know where he got the pitchfork? Did I miss that? No, I don't. I don't think they established the pitchfork the way they established, like, the uh, chainsaw or something. It's a summer camp. There's pitchforks laying around. Oh, I'll buy it. Let's I pause it. Own, I actually own a pitchfork now, John. That's a little scary, Vic. It is. Yeah, let's pause it there because there's a few. Like, I like to break down this whole part of the movie, this cat and mouse. So... Ginny has time to run away from the car and Jason. She turns a corner even, but she immediately hides in some undergrowth. And in her entirely blue outfit, she doesn't exactly blend in with the greenery. It's also really light out here. Uh, it doesn't look like day for night or anything, but it's definitely like kind of fake studio light. Uh, on location light, sorry. What I kind of love that sort of saves this sequence where I'm paused and you're about to see, she still gets the drop on Jason because he's going to blunder around the corner and she gives him a hard knee to the nuts. <laughs> and <laughs> regrouping from that, he just goes and doubles back the way he, he came. I just want to keep count of, as I said, the, the, the set pieces. So we had 
First yeah. we had the bathroom, we get the hand through the glass. Then we had the kitchen, we get the pitchfork through the door. She jumps out the window, gets into the car, we get the bag outside, pitchfork through the roof. Now she's running away. Let's see what the next one is. But that's, we're five minutes into the 18 minutes of chase scene, and we've had three solid set pieces already. I should mention, and I am kind of keeping count on this, and I'll talk about it more in a few minutes, but while he was kind of trying to cut a hole in the soft top of the of the bug to reach in and open the passenger door, she kicks it open and ejects Jason to the ground several feet below the road like he you know tumbles down into the ravine or something and he needs a moment to recover from that so i'll i'll double back to this but um this is one of the first times we see jason uh stunned in the movie it won't be the last Uh, you know the knee of the nuts doesn't doesn't slow him down too much but he runs the other way instead of following her which is i guess interesting well, he knows that he knows the terrain, right? Yes. Yes. So she's on the move. She goes to the car that Vicky was getting her hairbrush out of and, and the doors are locked. Jason is right behind the car. Very cool shot. Closing in. Jenny looks fucking terrified in front of the car, just being still. And then she takes off into the woods again once he moves away from the car. No, this is going to be interesting. She's running along this path, and Jason tries a flying tackle, misses her, has to regroup again. He scampers again, doggedly, with that pitchfork. And But this time, Ginny is hiding behind a tree, and she lets him run past her. And then we get this weird montage with the moon, and she's running through the woods. Looks like she's running in the same direction he went, but... I think this is supposed to suggest time is passing. And then we get Jason trucking along. We don't know where they're going or who's chasing who, really, at this point. Well, the full moon sort of does contribute to the mood of the thing, right? Like we're back yeah. to this, the like I said, with the storm, that there's sort of ominous things going on. The storm has moved on, but it's left this full moon. Uh, and Jenny yeah. has, has arrived at a cabin. Unlike some of the other movies, we've talked a lot about how the geography matters when you're putting these scenes together. I have no concept of the geography of the camp. Like, I can't imagine yeah, yeah. what child, wh- wh- whose children were in this cabin that is several minutes sprinting distance from, <laughs> from the rest of the camp. Oh, yeah. Let's pause it here with Ginny under the bed. I, I think that this is not like a kid's cabin. I think this is like where the chainsaw is kept and whatnot. So I, I don't know why it's so far away, but like this is more like the counselor maintenance cabin or something. With, I a, think. with a bed in it? It's, for, it's, it's, the, it's the counselor fuck cabin is what you're telling me. We store the chainsaws, and if you if you want to have sex and don't want the campers to find you, use this disgusting, nasty mattress. It's 1981, man. Come on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is somewhat of an important point that I, I, I make with some regret. This wasn't present with me when we started this autopsy, because I've given this Jason a lot of credit. But in watching this five or six minutes of screen time again, it's hard to argue that this isn't a low-light reel for Jason in the franchise. Let's try to keep score. He he missed Paul with his pitchfork, 
though he does seem to get the better of Paul off camera without killing him, it should be noted. He does obviously on camera miss a kill shot, and then he mistimes his attack when Ginny was about to climb through the window he was waiting behind. I'm talking about when he puts his hand through the glass. Mm-hmm. And then he stabs a pitchfork through the one part of the VW Bugs roof where no one could be sitting under, as I mentioned before. He gets booted off the car with the opening passenger door. He gets kneed in the nuts. He runs in the wrong direction. He misses his flying tackle. He picks himself up and runs onward, right past Ginny hiding behind a tree. And most of these beats end in Jason being dazed and disoriented. I have to say, this feels a bit like Home Alone Campground Edition. Has Jason turned into a wet bandit all of a sudden? (laughs) (laughs) They pull the mask off and it's just Daniel Stern. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I mean, I think that's part of the reason that I that I'm calling so much attention to the number of set pieces and and how long the this sort of last sequence of the movie lasts is. I'm I'm curious how much it works. Like, how many times can we play out this same series of events, and and still have it ring tension? Please. I don't know. Yeah. Every time I've seen this movie before, I understand that this is classic drawing out the tension of the final girl versus the killer sequence. And I've always applauded it. And I, I like the way the scenes are put together. And I like the tension and the verisimilitude and the you know, variations of each of these little things. But it's hard not to think the, the takeaway is that Baghead Jason is unflatteringly incompetent in these scenes. And we're not even done with it. Like where there's a couple more beats coming up that we don't see in subsequent films, even though I'll give him, he's persistent, he's dogged, he's the intrepid hunter. He's not concerned with any of these temporary setbacks. He's relentless. And I think all of that works cinematically, but if you're keeping score as in like, the effectiveness of Jason Voorhees. I think this is the low point of his entire cinematic career, this eight to 10 minutes where he's kind of inept. I will give you that, but I guess my argument is that he's inept because the story demands it of him and the story demands it of him because we're going to, we're going to drag this out for 20 minutes. And I like, I mean, this cabin scene that we're coming up on, I like, and I'm, I'm curious to talk about it. But could you have, like, could she have gone from the car to Jason's shack? There's no reason you couldn't have just done that. Straight to the shack, you mean, instead of this? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when she leaves the car, we we got her running through the woods, and then there's the moon, and then there's her running through the woods, and then there's the moon. She could have run right into Jason's shack, and, and you could have cut all this out. I'm not saying individually that any of the scenes are especially weak but collectively the tension starts to drain out of it for me at least for a while and as you say it forces jason to be inept over and over and over again because otherwise she'd be dead i mean i guess we're kind of reaching the same conclusion from different angles i'm seeing it more individually these scenes all work and i've always appreciated them but when you look at them from the standpoint of the slasher killer, the archetype, the antagonist, 
this is his nadir. It's kind of embarrassing yes. how bad he is, you know, through all of this. And that hadn't totally occurred to me until recently. And a lot of it isn't like, oh, well, just Ginny being awesome. It's more him just being incompetent. A little bit Magoo, if you will. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Let's hit play. Because, uh, yeah, we're about to have one of the most hotly debated sequences in the film where Ginny is hiding under a bed and a rat is going to show up and scamper into her eyeline, just doing the kind of preliminary sweep that a hungry rat might do if there weren't two people in this room. But the rat seems oblivious to Ginny and Jason. He runs right up to her in a friendly greeting that doesn't seem very wild animal to me. She's not thrilled about it. Somebody is going to avoid their bladder here. (laughs) A puddle of urine begins to spread from the foot of the bed she's hiding under. Either Ginny has uh, Indiana Jones and Snake's level of fear of rats, because I didn't see anything scary about this rat visit, or she's just had too many Heinekens at the bar and she's been holding it in for the last hour. So it wouldn't take much to open the the floodgates or it's the rat. I don't know. I'm John. I'm going to say in Jenny's defense, this very day, I was looking for something in my garage and I opened the bottom drawer of a file cabinet and a mouse jumped out of it. And I shrieked and slammed the slim. Did a puddle of urine flow out of your desk area? It did not, but if I had had eight to ten Heinekens, it would not be out of the question. I just saw, and there was nothing substantiated, but this very night, like, I looked at some article about this movie, and they said, it was the rat! I'm like, okay, so that's a lot of piss for a rat. At least someone believes that this was the rat no that's um, that's absolutely preposterous i mean there's always been this great ambiguity about the source of the urine and it's the fact that uh like the urine is what tips jason off and he he pulls this gambit which is again another epic fail for for jason really he's creeping her out like he's gonna trick her because he makes the screen door creak like it's opening to let him out but then he jumps on a chair and he's standing there ready with his pitchfork to stab her when she comes out from under the bed but the chair gives way underneath his weight and what do you know we have another sprawled and stunned jason moment is how that this uh turns out and i guess we can blame the shoddy workmanship of the chair uh because this jason isn't exactly a heavyweight but still, again, this feels like more a Jason fail than a Ginny win. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I saw this scene in The Ref with Dennis Leary where somebody's standing on a chair and it collapses underneath them. You could, you could put Benny Hill into this and it would play a slapstick comedy. <laughs> like, there's definitely a slapstick element to Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's, there, there shouldn't be. I'm not going to say I mean, I'm not going to say it plays. It doesn't it doesn't play like slapstick. But like I said, it's it's you just you have this this series of mini stories. Jenny is hiding somewhere. Jason comes in. Jenny's hiding. Jason almost gets her. Jenny gets away. And it's just how do we tweak the mechanics of each of those individual scenes? And that's how they tweak this, right? Like you would think that 
opening and closing the screen door, you know, because he knows she's under there, but she doesn't, even though she surely must realize that she's, that she's uh, urinated. Um, she doesn't realize that he knows. And so that part of it is like, Ooh, like that's clever Jason. But then he gets on the, this incredibly riggedy. There's a hundred things he could have done besides right. getting on this riggedy chair. It's just from a, from a writing perspective, like I can see, okay, I've got to, how am I going to ring this out? How am I going to make it be tense? How am I going to make Jenny behave in a way that's intelligent so that the audience doesn't lose their connection with her? How am I going to make Jason behave in a way that, that, you know, is still scary? I just think falling through this chair is not the, not the right, not the best answer uh, that they, that they could have come up with. You're talking about these set pieces and I would say they're more, they're just like these individual skirmishes, you know, little win loss struggles between these two characters. And most of them are TKOs for Ginny in boxing terms. Mm-hmm. Like how many knockdowns has Jason suffered? If this was a boxing match, they would have called it a while ago. Yeah. Because Jason has been knocked down time and time again. But he gets up, John. He gets knocked down. But he, he gets, gets up, up again. again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that should be the closing credits music on this hey, show. There yeah, you definitely. go. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So we I got sued by Chumbawamba. <laughs> can't wait to be in that courtroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she busts out a chainsaw and he's terrified of it and cowering, which I again, like all of this somewhat is the real person take on Jason. And I, I'm fine with that. It's like Leatherface. You know, this is the Leatherface Jason. Oh, that's an interesting point and in conversation I hadn't really mm-hmm. thought of. But this is like the the real person. He is the closest to Leatherface he'll ever be in this in this film. But the saw then it sputters and dies and she grabs a chair and she breaks it over him and he's down for the count again. And I think this partly helps us believe why she would leave at this stage without driving a pitchfork through his head because she's kicked his ass so many times in the last half an hour. Maybe she thinks he doesn't need to be dismembered or something. So maybe that helps. Yeah, she's she's going to make her way to Jason's cabin. And her first thought is going to be, oh, God, please help me. Um, and to be fair, you know, there's an oil lamp lit in the window. Uh, but I would say one look at that place does not declare, come on down, you'll find help here. Well, it also doesn't make much sense that she doesn't double back and head back to camp, right? That's yeah. where all the cars are. That's where, well, I don't know. She all the like cars. I don't know how many cars there are. I mean, the one that doesn't start and the one she doesn't have keys for. I'm just saying I would, I would take camp over uh, the woods. Yeah. In my, no, that's fair. but then we wouldn't get this magnificent scene. Oh, it's again in the pantheon of Friday the 13th. 13th scenes we're about to get one of my favorite shots ever there it is i'm i'm looking at it okay so it's so subtle it's so subtle alert only alert viewers will notice jason's bobbing head occupies about a 15th of the frame as she enters the cabin but he's Mm -hmm. visible running towards it 
because the camera catches him through a hole in the door. It's not even really a window in this shack, but I guess it's a window. It's all really natural and organic. It's part of the flow of the scene that as she enters, we see Jason hauling ass towards this cabin. I, I know we talked about it when we did this, you know, this movie originally, but he's just moving with a purpose. I've talked about Jason struggling here in, in the last few scenes, but the quintessence of what I do love about this incarnation of him is on display right here because it's a charging Jason at Mm -hmm. full gallop. And we're never going to get that again. And for me in its own way, that's as cool and as scary as any slasher killer ever gets in any of these movies. Maybe more of them should charge and gallop because the bag head is perfect for it too. The bobbing flower sack or pillowcase or whatever you want to call it. It just announces when you see this guy running at you, there's an unhinged maniac sprinting towards you right now. And he means to kill you. I'm on board with the, all the measured methodical steps and the sudden blades slashing and stabbing with lethal power and the absolute authority that Jason ends up having in his later incarnations. But I think there's really something to be said for just that bobbing head of the maniac charging towards you with his pitchfork. You know, you're absolutely fucked if he, if he catches you. He's a very real predator right yeah he is a charging bear a charging lion a you know a charging bull it tweaks something very primal uh in a way that slow walking jason doesn't that is supposed to be about suspense and this is really about fear yeah yeah like a a a lion or or something a wolf it just triggers something to to see this guy coming at you and and this shot in this sort of subtle way that he's not the even the focus of the shot it, it just it chills your spine in a way that the movie these movies rarely ever accomplish so I, I absolutely love it it's subtle it's one of the, yeah. it's one of the few subtle shots in a friday the 13th movie ever and it totally works i agree 100 percent. and it's something the white bag stands out against all of the black background so it does yes. sort of it does sort of leap out at you when you see it and of course then she sees it the other thing that i really that i like about it is there's a there's an immediacy to it in all these other scenes she gets there she looks around she looks for a weapon she looks for a way out like you know and then somebody tries a door handler jason walks in and she's hiding into the thing she walks in that door and within five seconds jason is barreling toward her so it's like this is not another hide and creep scene you know that's yeah. this is we are we are building to the climax absolutely that's a good point yeah the way it happens so quickly like the second she's in this place there he is yeah i absolutely it works in the in the scene's favor we're about to get a look at jason's special shrine to mama Her sweater and pants are laid out with her rotting head appropriately positioned, candles surrounding it. And we're going to see the dead cop sprawled behind the altar. And then on the other side of the altar, there's Terry with no visible injuries or even a deathly pallor. But she's sprawled beside an 
beside an extremely decayed corpse. Let's hit pause here, and we could double back if you want, Vic. Have you looked at this decayed corpse next to Terry? Because I think it might have an ice pick in its head. Let me see. Hang on. I'm, I think I'm a little bit behind you. Let me get there. It's in sort of the master shot of the shrine room. John, I, I really can't tell. I'm looking at it on kind of a kind of a smaller screen. I really can't tell. Uh, but that's certainly possible. And that would be interesting. Jason, as we've established, is they didn't they say that she disappeared? We've established that Jason is in the habit of moving bodies. Now Jason took the bus to get <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how we got it back, but right. uh, it it does fit outside of those those sort of logistical problems. It does fit with his mo. But let me ask you this, because this I find troubling. Why do you think he brought Terry's body back? I have no, no idea. <laughs> Come on, you've got some idea, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's not make assumptions about Jason. <laughs> I'm I mean, just saying, look, we, we talked about how attractive she is. She certainly he is. He didn't stab her. He didn't mutilate her body in any way. I don't know. There's literally nothing wrong with her body, as yeah. far as we can see. I'm joking, but I'm kind of not joking. Is Jason a necrophile? Uh, getting the other bodies back. The only sign of sexuality we get from him is, I believe, in three, when there's the suggestion that he may have raped our lead character in their first encounter. But he has a weird innocence to him. And I think, as you pointed out in our last podcast, it's not so much that sex is wrong as far as Pamela and Jason are concerned, so much as the dereliction of duty and irresponsibility they could have been playing parcheesi they could have been doing push-ups swimming whatever it was they weren't paying attention to him and that's the bottom line it's not necessarily that uh the counselors were having sex when he died or making love as pamela put it it, it it's not it's more that they were neglecting him and that's what they have to pay for was being irresponsible and i'm still somewhat on board with that that take or that interpretation versus true puritanism in in some way alternately that jason is a sexual being a frustrated sexual being and i will say and i think i have before that I read Michael Myers as a frustrated sexual being uh, in regards to his sister specifically, but I don't necessarily think that Jason is a frustrated sexual being. I'm just saying we've talked an awful lot about how human Jason is in this, you know, where he's got a yes, toilet, yes. <laughs> he's got a yeah. toilet, he's got food. The more I'm thinking about it, the and and again, as totally disturbing as it is, it makes a weird sort of sense to me. It reminds me of the Funhouse, the Toby Hooper Funhouse with mm -hmm. the monster handjob. If there is a Jason, again, why I love this Jason so much, where the the elasticity of our definition of this Jason and what he's capable of and what he's not. Like, this is the Jason that would be sexual. This is the Jason that is capable of making phone calls and riding a bus and taking the, burn, the, the, the pot off the burner and all of these things and 
that other Jasons aren't. Like this would be the Jason that would have a sexuality. Absolutely. And again, just to clarify, the cop fell there, right? If it is the girl with the ice pick, you can see him wanting to bring that back and show it to mom. Everybody yeah. else got shoved in a closet, strung up with a bed sheet, whatever. He brought her not just back to his shack, but to the shrine room where she is totally naked and her body totally unmuted, unmutilated. And that's why we never again, we never see the death scene for Terry. Is she naked? I think she's wearing clothes. Oh, you're right. She is wearing clothes. Yeah. yeah. But he probably saw her naked. To your point, he just he killed Vicky more recently and dragged her down the stairs, but she's not in the room. For whatever that means, he went to the trouble of bringing Terry here, but not Vicky or anyone else. You know, not uh, not Sandra, not Jeff, not Mark. He brought Terry of all of these people he's mm-hmm. killed. He brought Terry here. So I, I, I think that that's worthy of note you're you're absolutely right i'm gonna i'm gonna stand by and say it this is it i think jason brought that body back to fuck it (laughs) there it is in front of his mother no less (laughs) he brought her home to mama he brought her home Um, to mama yeah um i i did have the note that if this is alice this corpse that i'm you know I, i it's hard to make out even with blu-ray if that's an ice pick in its head or not but this corpse's clothes seem more rotted than pamela's and and the face and the head and all that seems more decayed than pamela his mother's head but if it's adrian king slash alice's corpse she died months at least a couple months after his mom so why is it more rotted more decayed that's kind of a question for me Good question. I don't have an answer. Yeah. yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't expect you to. Also, you can kind of see that the severed head here looks like it might be rigged to have it open its eyes. It looks strange. You kind of expect the sunken eyes to 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 flash open. They look like they could and should, but of course, it never happens because I guess the effect was kind of cheesy. So we're about to see Jason hacking through the door that Jenny has barred and she's going to put on that cable knit sweater and she she stares face to face with Pamela's head, adjusts her hair to look more like her. Apparently, as Jason breaks enough of a hole to unbar the door and we're about to hit the apex of this film. I know we've we've talked about this a bunch, but like they set this up. They knew where this movie was going. They dropped the seeds along the way and it it works. Like it really works. We've established the the realism of the character. We've established his psychology. We've established that she knows it. Yeah, it's not sloppy. It's well conceived and well executed. Yeah. Jason, it's all done, Jason. You've done your job well and mommy is pleased. He gives a little a little head cock there that's that's different than the Michael Myers head cock. It's more like kind of your dog, but it still works. Yeah. He's just like, huh? It's a great head cock, absolutely. Yeah. But very different, yeah. All right, let's pause it as Pamela returns. They got the Betsy. actress to Betsy come Palmer, back. Betsy right? Palmer. Betsy Palmer yeah. comes back, yeah, to shoot, you know, a scene in a, a black turtleneck. Or whatever. 
because she is such an important character in this film, overtly and just through Ginny's use of her, it's interesting because Ginny is clearly hip to the idea that Pamela would want Jason to slaughter the counselors and complete their dual vengeance for the circumstances that have put the two of them here like this, meaning Pamela's dead and Jason is this lonely figure. I don't think Ginny's gambit would have worked at all if Jason didn't want it to. He's bringing half of this deception to the table himself. He's actually seeing Pamela, which is what the movie is telling us with, you know, the actress appearing here or a delusion of her because this is what he wants. In some way, Ginny is completing his fantasy. She's not proposing it out of nowhere. The movie is definitely suggesting that the fact that Jason is so receptive to this, it confirms that this is exactly who he's doing it for and why. We abandon Pamela in that aspect of his psychology after this movie and simplify things. But I really like the thing I like most about the duality of part one and part two is this. I think I mentioned this last time, this psycho relationship of a mother, even a dead mother and her son. That's an aspect of of Jason that we abandon after this film, more or less. But it makes sense psychologically. And I think it makes Jason scarier. Yeah. I go, I go back to uh, there's a scene certainly in Halloween five at the end when Loomis is appealing to Michael and saying your niece can, she can do it. She can take away the rage. She can take away the pain, put down the knife. You don't need that. And you actually see him start to loosen his grip on the knife. And it is that that this is a, a faceless kind of soulless monster. And in, in Jason's case, more of a, a predator as we talked about in this, but still like an animal And this revelation of, this humanity, this psychology going on inside him is to me more terrifying that he's actually there's there's actually something I won't say rational, but human about him. And that's when you see this is he's been a charging bull and she stopped him. He's he's stopped charging that moment that that revelation, I think, is is really more terrifying than zombie Jason uh, ever was. I totally agree. Yeah, and you're hitting on exactly why I love this this Jason. Because, yes, he's not the toughest. We just watched him embarrassingly get his ass kicked for more or less nine minutes of screen time. And, you know, you can, you can make an argument that that's unforgivable or something when you're looking at an evil antagonist. The air of invulnerability of Jason does not exist yet in this film. But at the same time, he's scarier because he's more real and he's scarier because he's capable of more things. So I think I still believe it's a a net win for this Jason. It's more authentically grounded in psychology and realism, which is ultimately scarier than a undead juggernaut because we know those don't exist. But at the same time, He's also got a, a deeper toolbox of things that he can do, which makes him more unpredictable and capable 
again in a more realistic way. So I, I think it's an, a net win for this interpretation of, of Jason. Yeah. And, and the movie, you know, ultimately, yeah. He starts to see through her act. Jenny goes, Jason, mother is talking to you. And it gets him back in line. And I, I definitely had the feeling that she's either lucky or perceptive enough again to, to know that that might be something Pamela would say. It's interesting that Ginny doesn't look or talk like Pamela. So it's Jason's imagination, his need and his longing for this that are doing most of the work. He's so receptive to this fantasy. It's almost sad, isn't it? Yes. It is. And she and she understands that. I think you're right that her insight into what or I won't even say insight, but let's call it an educated guess at what the relationship between Jason and his mother was like pays off. You know, it's she she takes a swing with that. She takes it. She she rolls the dice a little bit and it works. And we're going to see in the scene the one eye in the pillowcase is watching her with great concentration. I also love that. God, that eye really is remarkably expressive. Until she moves. It is. And he sees the he sees his mother's head behind her. I love that. That's the kicker. Let's pause it. We gotta we gotta touch on that. If she doesn't move to reveal Pamela's severed head behind her, do you think Ginny just takes Jason out right there? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I think he just think so, he too. just gets stabbed in the head. But then he's able to parry her stroke because he sees his mother is still dead and decapitated behind Ginny and the illusion is dispelled. But if if that was not the case, I do really think that he was vulnerable to possibly being decapitated right there. And as, as we all know, being decapitated is is the the only fate that you cannot come back from as a slasher killer. <laughs> Somebody comes back from it. Jason. Who does? Jason comes. Jason comes back from. Well, he gets blown to bits, and uh, and Jason goes to hell. So you know, nothing can stop him. Well, you can always expand the mythology for these things, but generally speaking, like a decapitation is is the one thing you have to recast after that. Like yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> we get more shots of Terry coming up here. I just question why no one thought they should make her look dead or something, you know, because she's been dead longer than Jeff and we saw his corpse and he looked way deader than Terry does here. I think that they just didn't have the heart to despoil her beauty is, is my interpretation. (laughs) We're about to see that Paul shows up for round two and he has a nasty cut above his eye. So I would say that the implication here is that Jason knocked him out and left him for dead. Which is somewhat plausible because Ginny was right there. Once he dis- Jason disposed of Paul, he could then immediately pursue her. But it's a bit of a stretch that uh, in this scenario, Jason does not finish the job and, and kill Paul when he had the, the opportunity. Yeah, we all knew Paul was going to come back. That's also kind of a convention of horror films. If you didn't see him get stabbed... It's not this movie's finest hour, the way they handle that. Paul and Jason are going to be tussling, and Ginny takes the opportunity to put the machete through Jason's collarbone from behind. 
and Jason appears to pass out from the pain or shock or whatever, which I get. And let's hit play and watch that happen. I don't know if I said this already, but Paul and Jason are like the same size, which is kind of interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I mean, I know it's just a shack, but man, it really just collapses around them as they're fighting. It's, It's a shoddily put together structure. You think maybe Terry's just playing dead? She's waiting to see how this all this all Dude, shakes out. She <laughs> she looks like she could just pop right up and go skinny dipping again. That's all I'm saying. She does not look dead to me. They couldn't have put like a little makeup on her. I don't know. The slow mo on the kill shots is sort of. I mean, it's it's obviously it's not completely distinctive to this movie. But it is something that they go back to over and over again. I mean, again, I'm thinking, I don't. I actually don't remember if they do it in part three, but obviously they do it with uh, Corey Feldman in part four. Yeah, part four was very much taking its cues from this movie. Mm-hmm. I, I think three, not so much. But I think four knew that this movie was the real archetype. So she takes off the hood. We don't see Jason's face here, but he's unmasked. and. I'm more interested in not, I mean, they're horrified, but he ditches the gunny sack at this point. He doesn't put it back on like whenever, when he comes back, inevitably, he just leaves it behind for, from now on. What do you think about that? Well, it, well, he, he leaves it behind until he finds the, the hockey mask. I mean, at this point, I think he is theoretically at least sort of mortally wounded, and I feel like it's, you know, his his last gasp is not to hunt around for <laughs> for the sack, <laughs> but yeah. to, but to find to find these people and, and kill them as his sort of last act. I'm more interested. I, I just think it's we certainly get it in this one and the fourth one. And I believe in the third one as well, but also in Halloween and some of the others that you're going to get the, your masked slasher. We're going to get one short glimpse of what's under the mask. Uh, and I feel like it always disappoints. Do you think it disappoints here? Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we're going to get there momentarily because Paul yeah. and Jenny have gone back to the lodge. She's all fucked up, has wounds. You know, he's trying to comfort her. They're going to hear some scratching at the door. And Jenny grabs the head of this pitchfork you know, to defend herself and, and him. And she looks like more like Marilyn Burns at the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre than a happy child psychologist. That's for sure. You know, she's kind of hanging by a thread psychologically. It's a and great he, shot of her in the bed with the pitchfork. I love it. With the camera. Yeah. But of course, this is a fake out. Muffin is making her triumphant return to the film. And I love that Ginny says, oh, Muffin, like three times. And my question is, where has Muffin been? If it wasn't the ribbon dog whose corpse we saw many uh, hours earlier in the woods. Just an unrelated ribboned dog. They're all over Camp Crystal Lake. It was big in the 80s, ribbon dogs. You know? Big, it definitely, yeah. But the movie is, you know, using this, of course, this fake out to attempt a reasonable facsimile of the first one's epic final jump scare. And the timing is quite similar, Uh, even if to the modern eye, it it seems more predictable. 
people than it would have in 1981 as Jason bursts through the window. I'm watching it right now. Yeah, let's pause it, Vic. Somewhere in this sequence of Jason grabbing her from behind, which apparently they did multiple times, and Amy Steele hated it because it scared the fuck out of her every time he he jumped through the window at her. So, obviously, this Jason jump scare is very similar to the first one. It's slow-mo, and there's a big fright fanfare from the musical score. Jason is just grabbing her each time, whether it's Alice or Ginny, he has no weapons. Here, though, the difference is that instead of being this, you know, kind of bald child, Jason is older and he has lots of hair. He has a beard and yellow teeth. Half of his face is pretty normal, I would say. And the other half is all kinds of fucked up, deformed. But more or less, Jason looks like kind of any backwoods hillbilly wrong turn character in his plaid shirt and his overalls and his shoulder length hair. He's got a youthful face outside of this weird bulge in the middle of his forehead above the nose and that rough profile. And then as he turns his head though, you see he doesn't even have hair on that whole side of his head. And it's, it's pretty gnarly in keeping with everything we've been saying, like this is a very much real person version of, of Jason living person version of Jason. It definitely has sort of a, a wrong turn vibe to it. Yeah. The, the jump at the end of the first one, while nonsensical is one of the great jump scares in movie history. It's terrifying. And part of the reason it's so terrifying is that there is something perfectly off about the little boy and he's got like the the seaweed and shit on him or whatever but it's you can just tell that it happens even in the slow motion you could tell that there's something not right and you can't quite put your finger on it and it, it i don't know it's just it's really effective they show just the right amount the timing and the score like everything works just perfectly in it this is a a far lesser facsimile of that where they give you far more of Jason's face and, and look like it's fine. You know, the, the makeup is fine. It's not particularly imaginative, but it doesn't have any of the, it doesn't have any of the shock value to me that the first one had. Uh, I would have, I would have rather them shown less here if they were going to attempt to recreate this, this scene. So that's interesting. I mean, it's right, John, is what it is. It's not <laughs> right. I, I would just say that the Jason we see here is consistent with the Jason we've seen through the whole film. The guy that is more human, both more vulnerable and has a larger range of capabilities because he is more human. This is the reveal of someone who is deeply fucked up, but still basically a youngish, I think he's about 30 probably, human being. The the confirmation of that take on the character. That's all true. It's just not it's just not as scary. He Jason was yeah. scarier with the with the bag on his head uh a hundred times over than he is here. And so that's if you're going for the yeah. last scare. I get the impulse right. and it makes sense. It's just not as effective. 
what would you do? Would you have made him more fucked up here or how would you address this sequence? I probably would have, I would cut the slow motion Mm -hmm. so that it happens more quickly. And I would have used the hair to conceal his face more, not Samara and the ring concealed, but I would (laughs) have sealed his, I would have concealed his face more so that you just get that, that sense of wait what the fuck is wrong with that guy and then he's gone i would have held back more uh, but of course you know the mpa made them hold back on so many of the other makeup effects i'm sure that uh, it made sense to really linger on this a little bit i just but look i feel the same way about michael myers when michael myers mask comes off in halloween that's kind of a letdown because he's just a guy you know i like it's i just the the mystery of what's under there is going to be more satisfying than than what you see almost without fail. And because in the first one, there is no Jason, there is no mask, what you're seeing comes out of completely out of nowhere, then it, it works. Here, where we've had him in this very creepy mask, especially uh, in that the, the most recent scene where you, like you pointed out, you can see the one eye that sees through the, the mask and stuff. That shit is really scary from just a just a, a plain imagery standpoint. From a plain imagery standpoint, this isn't that scary. It's weird. It's even a little fucked up, uh, but it's not that scary. And it certainly doesn't leave me the same way that the first film left me, which is kind of shaken. I'm trying to imagine this movie without this look at him at the end. And I certainly never thought, you know, growing up, that oh you know it really takes a step back that we we have this part where we get this look at what jason is really i i think i've always appreciated it and and to this day i can't say that i don't see your point at all but i i still don't watch this movie and think this would be so much better if we never really saw jason the way that we see here i like this take on him and it's it just seems to fit somehow for me but i i don't feel that strongly about it well john it makes sense that we should wrap this up with you and i disagreeing a disagreement on something yeah. yeah but not but That's not fair. calling each other names rich isn't here to separate us we don't have a voice of reason we've got to keep our emotions in <laughs> I was definitely holding back there, man. I was oh, going to fuck yeah. fucking have it. I was going to call you a fucking <laughs> asshole, but whew, dodged a bullet there. All right. <laughs> We're going to white out again here. Uh, no fade to blacks in this movie. We got the cool fade to whites. Um, I'm looking at his extraordinarily fucked up side of his face. Things are going to get surreal at the end of this movie, as they did in part one. It's a very odd ending. Ginny is carried out by paramedics in the daylight. She's weakly calling out for Paul. There's no sign of him. But we just saw her dragged out of a window by Jason, or at least by seized by him as he crashed into the room. So what the fuck happened? Was that a dream? Did Jason leave Ginny for dead this time? And then we have this extraordinarily enigmatic slow zoom in on Pamela's head as our final image of the film. I think it might make more sense if she opened her eyes as was originally intended. 
in some weird dream logic kind of a way. But without that, it's just such an incredibly cryptic ending. I'm not saying it doesn't work for me, but it's one of the more open-ended slasher movie denouements that I can ever think of seeing. Jason didn't win. Ginny didn't win. This movie's a draw, I guess. I don't know. I'll just say that the film began with the dream and it kind of ends with one, too. There's definitely a nightmarish quality to both Alice and Ginny's experiences with Jason and these similar open-ended, ambiguous conclusions to their quote-unquote dreams. Like the first movie, we don't quite know here what happened to Jason or if he was even real in his final appearance in the film. Vic, what do you make of this weird, ambiguous ending? It's reinforces what I was saying about feeling like they were, they really wanted to shoehorn in some kind of uh, attempt at recreating that final scare in the first one, which I understand. Right. And I also understand that the, the, the filmmakers were uh, in this instance saddled with these kind of logical incongruities uh, as far as the, the beginning of the film, the setup of the film, they couldn't quite figure out a way around it, so they just sort of ignored it. Here, they had all the they had the whole movie to to figure out and explain how this was going to end. Now, I like I really like the slow zoom in on Pamela. That's a really uh, unsettling shot. It's a great makeup effect. I also kind of agree that the the eyes opening would have been that. So there, if you want to do something incongruous to unsettle your audience. You could do that, and that would really work. But how you have Jason leap through the window and grab her, pull her out, fade to white, and then just not explain anything that happens there is—it's they really drop the ball. That's really how I how I have to how I have to view it. You had this very satisfying ending in place. I know you wanted a, a, a final jump scare or something. I mean, I think you really could have ended it with. Paul and Jenny walking out and then cut to the slow zoom in on mom and have the eyes open or don't have the eyes open. But I mean, if you want to get the eyes open works as an incongruous kind of, you know, you put a sting in there, you get a little bit of jump out of the audience. I think that leaves you in the, in the right mood. This leaves me going, huh? Yeah. And I don't, I don't think that's really where you, where they, where they wanted to leave us. Agreed. Yeah. From what I understand, it was just a bad effect. Like they weren't able to, they didn't have Tom Savini. They didn't have Stan Winston. The guy who did the effects ended up, you know, doing Silence of the Lambs and obviously was no slouch, but they weren't able to pull that effect off. But I think that would have been the thing about the first movie was, holy shit, like somehow we take it to the next level in that like whether he's dead whether it's you know supernatural whatever jason jumps out of the lake and that like blows your mind well pamela's eyes opening would have blown our mind in this yep. scenario it would have taken it to the next level and it would have also justified i've i've touched on in our last show and and so on that like the soundtrack and everything the vibe of this movie has this like weirdly eerie supernatural kind of quality and of course the franchise goes there eventually goes supernatural this would have been a logical place to to take that leap 
but they, you know, they're just like, ah, oh, it looks funny. It looks dumb that she opens her eyes. And so, yeah, we, we end up with this ambiguous but empty kind of uh, resolution to the film instead of like really taking it to the next level or going uh, grounded and plausible and realistic. So we, we end in this surreal dreamlike thing, but without like a real payoff to it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that ultimately it's somewhat of a, a, a misstep and the ambiguity is not doing the movie any uh, favors. So that's that's unfortunate at the end of yeah. the day. I'm all for ambiguity and especially at the at the tail end of a movie like this, it, you know, it, it really fits. But yeah, I just think they, they hewed too closely to the first film, sort of hung on too tightly to what worked in that one. In this one instance, it's not bad. You know, it's an OK jump scare. But yeah, like it's you, you really do walk out. It, it, it just looks poorly thought out. Look, I mean, that's a, a small critique in, I think, a movie that we have otherwise really enjoyed and and really stands up to this level of criticism. I mean, there's not it's not every movie that I want to put on our slab and spend this time uh, digging through its organs. But this movie is 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 absolutely worth that. One of the thoughts and I'll, I'll dig into this more when we do the overview show is that. This is really the first Friday the 13th movie. And Friday the 13th Part 1 is a prequel. And if you look at it in that way, because what you're really getting in this movie is they're laying out all the all the beats, all the stuff that you're going to get in the future movies. They're in this movie. I think that if you look at it through that lens, it really does make this an exceptional film. And not just because then it's not Friday the 13th part two. You're not looking at all the narrative incongruities mm-hmm. and everything else. If you just take this as this is really the first Friday the 13th movie, then it, it plays, I think, extraordinarily well. Absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, some elements of the blueprint were set in place in the first movie, but it is essentially a, a prequel. And, and this is what begins friday the 13th as we know it and love it no no question about that and that that's a big part of its charm it's sad that we don't see Ginny in another friday the 13th film but she probably wouldn't have survived so uh, we can take that to mean that she she made it out and maybe jason never came looking for her i mean she didn't kill his mom so <laughs> I kind of like that. <laughs> it certainly seems like he drug her out the window and went, yeah, okay, that's, we're done here. <laughs> right, right. Making sense of what happened at all in any way you look at this, at the end of this film, whether it's what happened to Paul, what happened to Ginny, what happened to Jason, you know, maybe maybe it's worthy of, of of more thought and conversation but i don't i don't certainly don't have it figured out now we're going to reconvene before long to discuss this movie again from more of a macro perspective and and not a macro lens which is actually a close-up lens and i'm sorry to confuse everyone with that but vic any final thoughts about the second half of this movie or the ending before we uh say good night tonight Mostly, I just want to reiterate the the care and craft that went into 
the characters and the narrative setups and the, I mean, really just set up, payoff, set up, payoff. Nothing is wasted in this movie for the most part. And that is an extraordinarily rare thing to say about any slasher film, uh, but especially a sequel and one like this that I will say was was put behind the eight ball a little bit, I think, by some of the choices that were made in the first film. So it's and 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 also well directed, like, you know, comp- competently directed everywhere and occasionally exceptionally well directed. Uh, and so if you put those things together with, uh, you know, a charming and likable cast, it really goes a long way toward elevating uh, these movies towards something that that, you know, might be the greatest slasher film ever made. Can't be stated enough that this movie was made 10 months or released 10 months after the original. And you you get this pretty fully formed vision that advances the concept of the first one and creates the real paradigm that a long-running series would utilize from then on. Uh, it's a pretty remarkable turnaround and a, a film that was clearly lightning in a bottle, which many of the classic horror films were. All right, so that's a wrap, folks. I hope you really enjoyed our our scene-by-scene examination of this classic slasher film as much as we did. If so, drop me a line on Twitter at John F, as in Frank, underscore Evans. We've got a blog going at jfevans.com. There's a Black Christmas article up there you might be interested in. And, of course, the March Mad Men Facebook group. So until next time, uh, make sure you keep clean during your menstrual cycle when there are bears around. (laughs) Definitely take that unreliable VW bug in for service. And uh, Vic is cringing. I love it. And remember that a degree in child psychology could save your life one day. When in doubt always knee your attacker in the nards (laughs) (laughs) 